0: What I'd like to talk about this evening is learning. Our own willingness to learn, our own openness to learning. People come to retreats for a variety of different reasons. Some people come to retreats from a background of pain and sorrow. Some people come out of curiosity. Some people come out of an interest in exploration, a trust in possibility. Underlying these different inspirations, I think there is a common theme, a shared theme, in that the openness, the willingness to learn, the willingness to deepen an understanding to deepen in wisdom. And the learning that we're concerned about on retreats is not learning some new kind of philosophy or belief system. We're not interested in accumulating a, a whole load of new intellectual information, but really the kind of learning that we talk about in meditation is qualitatively different, opening to a different way of learning and seeing. We are here to learn about ourselves, to learn about the way that we see and hold ourselves and to understand the way in which we see and hold the world around us here to explore and to learn what it might mean to live without fear and without alienation. What it really does mean to live with openness and with spaciousness and balance. And to explore too, through the practice, a very different way of learning. A way of learning which is not filtered through our ideas, our opinions, and our conclusions, but a way of learning that is really rooted in seeing very directly, very immediately, and very intuitively, and through the immediacy of the seeing, really to discover a different dimension of learning, a quality of learning that has a profound impact. A quality of learning that really can bring about transformation, that will teach us how to let go, how to open, how to deepen, how to live with wisdom, how to live with compassion. This willingness to learn, this yearning for understanding is often the intention that brings us to retreats and yet it does seem apparent many times that it's really not so easy to find the receptivity and to find the openness that seems to be required for direct, for very immediate seeing. It does seem that a certain calmness of being, a certain stillness of mind, is really needed for us to be able to connect in a very immediate way on a moment-to-moment level. And what we encounter when we begin a retreat, and actually often far into a retreat, is our mind's seemingly unfortunate and seemingly bottomless capacity to introduce an endless stream of conclusions and judgments and opinions into almost every perception. And all of these conclusions and opinions and judgments we cannot help but hear. What they do is they tell us about the world, or rather they tell us what we think about the world, what we think about other people, and what we think about ourselves in endless detail. Rather than allowing us just to see and just to be touched by what is in each moment, it is important to be clear that learning can only take place in one in one time and one place, and that place and time, of course, is now. Learning is linked to our capacity to be open to and to be touched by what is happening in each moment, not in the future, not as an attainment, not as an achievement, but through our very connection with the moment that we're in. This, I must say, is sometimes very difficult for people to accept in the spiritual life, that learning is about where we are and who we are and what we are with in this moment. So often we have so many expectations about learning, about wisdom, about insight. And our expectations around learning and insight tell us that, you know, that if we're going to have an insight, it's going to be special It has to be a kind of startling or dramatic kind of experience. And it is very difficult for many people to free themselves of the idea that meditation is about getting somewhere special. Some special destination, some special plane, some special alternative form of experience. It's hard to free ourselves of the idea that meditation is about having kind of headline experiences that are really going to be very dramatic, great revelations, exalted, lofty, or spiritually excellent in some way. These agendas that we hold about learning And that we hold about insight, unfortunately, tend to get in the way of true learning. These agendas that we hold about reaching particular destinations that are separate from where we are, apart from where we are, get very much in the way of true learning. These agendas really tend to blind us to what is available in this moment. We can be so busy looking for the extraordinary in our meditation and in our lives, that it's very difficult to open to the learning that is offered to us just through the ordinary. We can be so busy looking or waiting, hopefully, for some special revelation to strike us, that it's not so easy for us to open to learning from the simplicity of just what each moment offers to us. There are many times in people's experience in meditation that they find themselves being really rather dismissive of what they are experiencing. These are just thoughts. This is just pain. This is just a mental state. This is just boredom. This doesn't have to do anything with meditation. This is actually what I need to get over in order for me to meditate. In dismissing the moment, we look away from it. And why do we look away from it? Because it doesn't seem to hold this aura of really being anything special. And so we miss the learning that is offered. Many times, that happens in interviews or in groups, that people come really rather desperate and frustrated and disappointed with themselves, saying, nothing is happening in my meditation. I'm not getting anywhere. It's just the same old stuff over and over and over again, the same boredom, The same restlessness, the same thoughts, the same memories, nothing is happening. I'm just sitting there so frustrated that nothing is happening. The key word, of course, in this message is I. I am not getting anywhere. In other words, I am really not getting what I expect to be getting, what I hope to be getting, what I anticipate getting. I am expecting something. I have an agenda about attainments and experiences and states. A great deal, of course, is actually happening in the frustration, in the boredom, in the restlessness, in the disinterest. Enormous amount is actually going on, but it's not what I want to be going on. It's not what I think should be going on. These agendas, of course, lead us into this whole pursuit, area of pursuit, reaching towards something reaching towards somewhere that is apart from where we are and our agendas are often unconscious we're not even aware that we have an agenda and in some ways that's true we don't actually have an agenda rather our agendas somewhat have us what is happening what is actually happening when we turn away from what we're actually experiencing. When we resist it or dismiss this moment, basically what we are saying is that this experience or this moment or what is taking place right now is somewhat worthless to me. It is not offering me anything. That in the frustration or in the boredom we feel, there is really no message and no learning. This is, of course, a a totally questionable assumption, but it is also an assumption that feels totally logical in the light of our agendas. But then what we are truly saying is that our openness to learning is somewhat conditional, that we are willing to learn from that which we somehow label or value as being worthwhile but most times those agendas do not include the ordinary. And most times too, our agendas about what we're willing to learn from tend to exclude the unpleasant, the irritating, the challenging, the annoying, and the threatening. Many times, of course, we all have this experience of having a kind of opponent in the meditation room. Most people find that some retreat or another, they manage to have an opponent on the retreat. Even on women's retreats, this <laughs> happens, I have to say, despite our expectations about how wonderful it will be to be with a group of women, no, the opponent often really doesn't do anything terrible. You know, it's often, you know, we could, other areas of our life, we're probably really quite forgiving, except here. Here we're not so forgiving, because this person really seems to be out to impede our development. (laughs) Now, it's often a very simple thing. A person beside us has a cold. This is the classic one, the sniff. The sniff, you know, you're waiting for the next sniff. <laughs> Your whole meditation is about waiting for the next sniff. <laughs> or the deep breather. You know, there's always a deep breather on every retreat. You know, and you, and you sit, sitting after sitting, watching somebody else's breath. <laughs> 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 this this those. <clears throat> and there's, of course, the restlessness. You know, the person who wears the down jacket and seems to need to move every few seconds. Now, they're often fairly inconsequential things that, you know, wouldn't really shatter us in other areas of our lives. But here, of course, they seem to have a sudden impact. Now, our first response, of course, to our opponent tends to be, in you know, a somewhat compassionate you know, we're really sorry this person has this cold, you know, we're sorry they're suffering, and you know, we feel really badly, you know, maybe this person has asthma, that's why they need to breathe so deeply, you know, and we're really real sorry for this person's knees that seem to make them want to twitch and shift (laughs) around constantly. And we do usually, I mean, in all honesty, manage, you know, some hours, often even, a few hours of, of compassion and generosity and understanding but it seems like a very short life on a retreat actually <laughs> at compassion and very quickly it's amazing how our compassion seems to be swallowed by a whole range of other reactions annoyance anger irritation you know writing notes, the teachers take care of it, you know, somebody's got to fix this person, I can't, you know. But the bottom line, of course, the bottom line in all of these reactions that are going on is this feeling that I can't meditate, I can't possibly be present in the face of this adversary. Now, this is too much. This is stopping me from meditating. It is stopping me from deepening. For crying out loud, you know, it's just stopping me from learning. Having to sit near this person, of course, we do this not only with others. We have our own opponents too. You know, when you hear the, you know, the chatter and the judgment, or the the dullness, or the restlessness. Again, that that, you know, after a few token hours of patience, um, there again comes this feeling, you know, that I'm waiting for my retreat to start. And it's going to start, of course, when this has stopped. This is conditional, the start of my retreat. That again, this bombardment is stopping me from learning. And these experiences are really common on a retreat. They are also, I feel, very revealing. Where on earth do we think that learning and understanding actually lies? Where do we think it lies? Apart from our reactions, apart from the impressions that the moment brings to us and our responses to them. Where do we actually think that we are going to have the opportunity to explore what it means to let go, what it means to open our hearts, what it means to welcome, what it means to deepen in generosity, apart from these moments that actually challenge us. It is not helpful to, in any way, judge our reactions or judge our lack of compassion I think it is really helpful for us to see that it is the very ordinary grist of life that offers us the opportunity to learn and to let go, to learn new dimensions of humility, new dimensions of forgiveness, new dimensions of compassion. I'd like to read you, (coughs) or tell you a short story about Gurdjieff, I had a community, a spiritual teacher, I had a community in France. And there was one old man who lived in the community who was a personification of the qualities of anger, ill will. He was irritable, he was messy, he fought with everyone, and of course he was unwilling, unwilling to clean up or help at all. No one got along with him. And finally, after many frustrating months of trying to stay with the group, the old man decided to leave for Paris. Gurdjieff followed him and tried to convince him to return, but it had been too hard and the man said no. At last, Gurdjieff offered the man a very big monthly stipend if he returned. Now, how could he refuse? When he returned, of course, everybody else in the community was horrified. And on hearing that he was being paid, <laughs> while they were being charged a great deal to be there, the community was up in arms. And Gurdjieff called them together. And after hearing their complaints, he explained, this man is like yeast for bread. He said, without him here, how would you you would without him here, you would never really learn about anger about irritability, about patience, and about compassion. And that's why you pay me, and I hire him. (laughs) Now, I would say that no one's been paid on this retreat. (laughs) We don't know, we don't actually know who or where our teachers are actually going to come from until we are really willing to set aside our own agendas about learning, until we're willing to set aside our own attachment to the special and to pursue learning according to our expectations. It's really not possible to have a conditional openness, just like it's not possible to have a conditional compassion or sensitivity Nor is it true to believe that learning and deepening and understanding is somehow dependent upon being tranquil and undisturbed. Our teachers and our learning are really very, rarely far away from us. Our challenge is really to know what it means to be touched and to be receptive and to cultivate a spirit of inquiry in the face of the impressions that each moment brings to us. We should ask, it might be helpful to ask, why is it that we have this interest and this fascination, at times almost this addiction to the special, to the lofty, to the extraordinary, to the highly exciting, Why do we demand the special, not only in our meditation, but in our lives? Is it because we perhaps believe that we will be made special through our contact with that which we label as being special? Do we believe that in some way we will be enhanced, made better, made more special ourselves through our attainment, or through our possession of the special experience. Why do we believe that we will learn more from an altered state of consciousness than from listening to the sound of a bird? Is it because we may be so fearful in ourselves or so uncertain and secure in our understanding of ourselves, that we come to believe that we will be made special only through contact with the special, that we will be made worthy or valuable only through contact with that which which we label as being worthy or valuable. Why do we even hold these distinctions in our minds between what is special and what is ordinary? Because surely we see The tension and the conflict that is born of these distinctions, they lead us to pursue one thing as we reject another, to cherish one thing as we dismiss something else, to hold on to one thing as we reject another. Meditation is really not about achieving anything special at all nor is it a denial of the ordinary. Rather, I feel this whole practice is learning how to see the ordinary in the special and how to see the special in the ordinary. That in some ways this comes brings a genuine sensitivity, a way which teaches us how to totally embrace each moment with a consciousness which makes and which fosters no divisions and no separations. Then we begin to understand about transformation. Then we begin to understand the way of transformation, the process and the vehicle of transformation. That the way of transformation has not to do with the objects that we're in contact with, whether they're objects in the world or whether they're things within ourselves. The way of transformation has to do with our relationship to them. We, I think, is so easily seduced by the world of objects, so easily seduced into having these conclusions and beliefs that lead us to think that our well-being, that our happiness, that our clarity and freedom Is somehow dependent upon the contents of our experience or the quality of objects that we are in contact with. How many times we have these thoughts that if I had less of one thing and more of another then I would be happy, then I would be clear, then I would be content. If I had less boredom and more interest, if I had less thoughts and more silence. If I had less past and more present, then I would be happy. I think if I had less resentment and more compassion, a different mind, a different personality, <laughs> a different life, a different relationship, the list of our minds, that we seduced into believing that their totals add up to happiness and well-being and contentment. This is not meditation, this is redecoration, (laughs) this is manipulation, it is the desire to control, it is also delusion. It is the movement of craving and the movement of aversion, of becoming, of of attainment. It's a movement that is propelled by conclusions. The transformation of consciousness is not reliant upon the contents of our minds. Transformation of consciousness is not dependent upon the number or the quality of objects we are in contact with. It is not linked to how mundane or how special those objects are. The transformation of consciousness is not to do with where we are. It is to do with how we are with where we are. How much in every moment can we let go of greed and resistance? How much in every moment can we let go of holding and avoidance? How much in every moment can we open, can we embrace with spaciousness just what is? How much in every moment can we bring equanimity and compassion to being present? This is wisdom. This is what, from what right action is born. As long as we see ourselves, or see the world through the filter of our conditioning, of our conclusions, of our likes and our dislikes, we are living in a way in which we are endlessly creating opponents. And as long as we live in a way in which we are endlessly creating opponents, then we are also always bound to aversion, to avoidance and to flight. How can we be touched by the extraordinary possibilities of this moment when our minds are full of conclusions? How can we be touched by the goodness of our own hearts, the goodness of others, if we are contracted around demands and expectations? How can we be touched by simplicity if we are so filled with the complexity of our shoulds. There's a Nasruddin story about an apple. Nasruddin had barely finished his discourse when one of the scoffers in the crowd said to him, instead of spinning spiritual theories, why don't you show us something really practical? A poor Nasruddin was puzzled. What kind of practical thing would you want me to show you? He asked. Rather pleased that he'd mortified the muller and was making an impression on the crowd, the scoffer said, for instance, show us an apple from the garden of paradise. Nassid immediately picked up an apple and handed it to the man. But the apple, this apple's bad on one side, said the man. Surely a heavenly apple would be perfect. A celestial apple would indeed be perfect," said the Mala. But given your present faculties, this is probably as near to a heavenly apple as you will ever get. (laughs) We, of course, can carry with us so many conclusions. And what are our conclusions and our judgments and our opinions? but really a replay of the stories of the past over and over again. Do they help us? This is an important question to ask ourselves. Do they help us? How have you been helped today by any of your judgments? (laughs) Any of your conclusions? They done great things for you today? Maybe tomorrow. It seems we have this somehow underlying belief that they will help us because we see the desire to replay them again and again and again. Do they bring us closer to anything? Do they connect us in any way with what is? Or do they not just keep us bound to the past and bound to contraction and to division? Do we need them? If we don't need them, then, of course, the next obvious question is why do we hold on to them? Why do we hold on to them in any way? And I think sometimes if we investigate it, we see that our conclusions and our opinions and our judgments, in some ways they seem to offer us a kind of protection against fear and against insecurity. Because our conclusions and our opinions and our judgments tell us about the world, and they make it familiar to us. And then they act as a kind of defense. We think we know another person, we think we know the world, we think we know ourselves, we know what our judgments are about them. Sometimes too it seems easier to know things through our conclusions and our judgments, and to truly question, inquire, and explore. But we must see that in that we do sacrifice a certain depth. We seem to accept a super, certain superficiality. We accept our conclusions to be true, and they become our reality. I have another short story about an old man. Another old man. I have so many old men tonight. I have a friend, a woman I know already many years. One day she's mad at me. From nowhere it comes. I have insulted her, she tells me. How? I don't know. Why don't I know? Because I don't know her. She surprised me. That's good. That's how it should be. You cannot tell someone I know you. People jump around. They're like a ball, rubbery. They bounce. A ball cannot be long in one place. Rubbery, it must jump. So what do you do to keep a person from jumping? The same as with a ball. You take a pin and stick it in, make a little hole and it goes flat. When you tell someone, I know you, you put a little pin in. So what should you do? Leave them be. Don't try to make them stand still for your convenience. You don't ever know them. Let people surprise you This, likewise, you could do concerning yourself. It is true that our conclusions have a dramatic power to stop learning, because our conclusions lead us to construct realities that we accept as being truths. We have all these descriptions about what I am, what I have, what I know, and we endlessly dispense those descriptions to the world around us. And yet every one of those descriptions is a contradiction of essential universal principles. Everything that we experience, whether it is pleasant or whether it is unpleasant, whether it is fearful or whether it is uplifting, is in the process of turning into something else. If we can restrain ourselves from our conclusions, we are in tune with that process of unfoldment. If we cannot restrain ourselves from our conclusions, we also prevent that unfoldment. Hatred turns to forgiveness. Resentment can turn to compassion. Fearfulness can turn to spaciousness. Just as division can turn to connectedness. As long as we are not deceived by our conclusions and by our images. Learning to be still, learning to be present, learning to be patient with all things. This is learning how to open. Everything that we need, for learning, everything that we need to learn is with us already. We only need to open to it. The greatest obstacle in meditation that we face in learning is this our process of contraction. Contraction is that movement of our minds which isolates something out of the whole dance of phenomena, a thought A feeling, a memory, another person, is isolated, it is highlighted, it is taken out, it becomes something. In that moment of isolating something, we begin a process of closing down, that is continued through holding, through identification, that brings in feelings associated with the past. We react to what is isolated. A thought, feeling, I like it, I don't like it. I want to indulge in it, I want to resist it, I feel aversion for it, or I want to continue it. We also become something in relationship to what we isolate and what we hold on to and what we cling to. We become something. A thought which is angry is isolated, We gain a definition in that moment. I'm angry. A thought of sadness is isolated. We gain a definition in that moment of clinging. I am sad. I am depressed. Feeling of agitation or busyness. This is what I become through my holding. Everything else recedes into the background. Notice how that happens. When you isolate something and hold on to it, Everything around you in this moment becomes very vague. It recedes into the background because the consciousness contracts around what is being isolated. When the consciousness contracts around what is being isolated, it it loses that expansiveness, that spaciousness, that sense of embracing and accommodating. And in that process of contraction, we so very often stop learning. Because we create a conclusion, and a definition, and an image, and too often a reality. We are not powerless in the face of that contraction. This whole practice is about expansiveness, spaciousness, learning to accommodate. We are not powerless in the face of that contraction. It may be a long, deeply ingrained habit but it is not a long process of transformation. We need to learn how to open into it, how to be patient and fearless, how to stay with it, to be deeply willing to listen well to that whole process of contraction. That listening in itself is opening. To be aware of where we close down around things. That awareness in itself is opening. It teaches us how to let go, how to let go, how to open, how to be expansive. These are not areas of expertise that take many, many years of practice. They have to do with our willingness to learn and to listen to just one moment at a time. Our willingness to let go, to open, to be present just with what is, without aversion, without resistance, without prejudice. That is what transformation is all about. To see how much happiness there is in that expansiveness, how much well-being, how much contentment, how much joy there is in that spaciousness, in that unconditional openness to learning, to listening without prejudice. One last thing I would like to read you. from Lao Tzu. The ancient teachers were profound and subtle. Their wisdom was unfathomable. There is no way to describe it. All we describe is their appearance. They were careful as someone crossing an iced-over stream, alert as a warrior in enemy territory, courteous as a guest, fluid as melting ice, shapeable as a block of wood, Receptive as a valley and clear as a glass of water. Do you have the patience to wait till your mud settles and the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving till the right action arises by itself? The teacher doesn't seek fulfillment, not seeking, not expecting. She is present and can welcome all things. The whole of our practice, the whole of our being here, is learning how to welcome all things, learning how to be touched, learning how much appreciation and gratitude and connectedness comes from that openness to learning, from that openness to welcoming. Just learning how to welcome in an unconditional way. Wisdom comes to us. Understanding comes to us. Everything that we need to learn comes to us. And this is what our path, the path of meditation, is really all about. Male beings live with receptivity. May our beings live with openness. May our beings live with awareness. If we could just have two minutes quietly together, please, and then we'll have a walk.